What I would like you to do now, though, is to take out your Bibles and to turn in them in the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in that Bible to page 161 in the back, and you'll find yourself parked at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. You know, the 1970s was the disco era, and in 1979, there was a song that was number one on the R&B charts, and it was number two on the pop charts, and that song in 1979 became the theme song of the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team as they went and they won the World Series championship. It was a song by a group called Sister Sledge, and the title of the song, We Are Family. And the song went something like this, We are family. I've got all my sisters with me. We are family. Ah, that's enough of that, okay? We got it going. <laughs> Sister Sledge did it just a little bit better than that. But that idea, we are family, is a description of a New Testament truth for the local church. The New Testament church says that we are a community. In fact, when you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and you glance at verse 12 and at verse 14, you'll see that he addresses them there as brethren, as brothers and sisters. We are family. And in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says that as family, we are to treat the older men in the body as fathers, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity, because we are family as believers in Jesus Christ. We have come in our study of 1 Thessalonians to a section which begins to unpack some essential priorities for keeping spiritually straight in a crooked world. And in chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, as he talks about how we are family, he's going to tell us how we are to relate to spiritual leaders and how we are to relate to each other, since we are family. I want to read verses 12 to 15, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read what he writes, not only to these believers, but to us today. He says in verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. The title we have given to the message today is We Are Family. And the outline that we have for us today basically breaks into two sections. Because in verses 12 and 13, he wants to talk about as family how we are to be relating to spiritual leaders. 
And then in verses 14 and 15, he wants to talk about how, since we are family, we are to be relating to each other. Now, I want you to know something before we get into these verses. These verses are incredibly practical. And I want to encourage you this morning to be writing some of this down, to be taking some notes. We have notepads out there. You might take notes in your Bible. You might wonder, why are all those blank pages in my Bible? There is a reason for that. It provides you with an opportunity to write these things down. This is very important because it's going to help us understand how we are to relate to one another as family. So we want to begin by looking at what he has to say about relating to spiritual leaders. And it breaks down into three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at some description of spiritual leaders. We're going to look at some recognition of spiritual leaders. And then we're going to look at an overarching principle, which is the principle L. I-P. So when it comes to relating to spiritual leaders, we want to understand a little bit about who they are, how we should be recognizing them, and then an overarching principle. Now I want to share with you, before we get looking at spiritual leaders, the results of a computerized survey that indicates what the perfect pastor is like, okay? It says this, the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sin but never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $500 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $400 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 25 years. He is wonderfully gentle and handsome. You know, it's amazing how accurate these things are. You know what I'm talking about? Incredible. A perfect pastor loves to work with teenagers and spends countless hours with senior citizens. He makes 15 calls daily on church families, shut-ins, and hospital patients, and is always in his office when needed. He has the strength of an ox, the tenacity of a bulldog, the daring of a lion, the wisdom of an owl, the harmlessness of a dove, the industry of a beaver, the gentleness of a sheep, the versatility of a chameleon, the vision of an eagle, the hide of a rhinoceros, the perspective of a giraffe, the endurance of a camel, the disposition of an angel, the loyalty of an apostle, the faithfulness of a prophet, the tenderness of a shepherd, the fervency of an evangelist, and the devotion of a mother. If your pastor does not measure up, Simply send this letter to six other churches that are tired of their pastors too. <laughs> then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one week you will receive 1,643 pastors. Perhaps one of them will be perfect. Leaders. How are we to relate to them? Well, look at the description he gives to us here. Several things we want to note about leaders in the church. The first thing I want you to notice is there is a plurality of leaders. He talks about the leaders and how he mentions some key words here. He talks about the idea of those, plural, who labor among you. Verse 13, that you esteem them, plural. And uh, not only that, but it talks about their work, plural, in verse 13. 
See, this idea that there's just one leader in the church really is foreign to the New Testament. So it's not relating to a leader, it's relating to the leaders in their plurality. The second part of the description here of leaders I want you to notice is found where he says there, notice, appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. The second descriptive is they are over you. They have charge over you. Literally in the original, it says they stand before you. They lead from the front. He says, I'm talking about the people who lead from the front, who set an example and set the direction in the church, the people who are accountable to God, the people who are responsible. And notice that little phrase, it's all in the Lord in verse 12. So we have a plurality. There are those who are over you, who stand before you. And then notice, thirdly, in the description of these leaders, they are among you. Notice that in verse 12, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. They're standing before you, but they're doing it in the spirit of a servant. These are leaders who labor among you. You know, shepherding, shepherding people is hard. It's hard to do. It's tiring. It's draining. And another thing that makes it difficult is it's hard to measure success. How do you know you're having success when you're shepherding people? How do you know you've really accomplished something when you're shepherding people? It's just hard to know. It's not like turning out so many products or making so many sales. It's a hard thing. And these leaders, he says, in, in verse 12, give you instruction. That's what leaders are to do, to teach you the truth, to apply Scripture to life, to keep Scripture central in all that the church is doing. That's what leaders are to do. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul talks about valuing those who work hard at preaching and teaching as leaders. So when we talk about relating to leaders, who's he really talking about? Well, he's talking about more, I think, than what we often call the, you know, maybe the senior pastor or the, or the pulpit person or whatever. He's talking about more than that. It certainly would include those who are overseers and those who are elders, two different terms used of a leadership group in the New Testament, those who are pastors, vocational leaders, non-vocational leaders. But, you know, it's interesting. He doesn't mention elders using that title or overseers using that title. And so I think he's got a little broader idea here. I think it would even include a lot of the small group leaders in the church. And he's saying, I want you to think about those group, that group of people. The people, there's going to be a plural number of them, who are over you, they stand before you in the Lord, and they're among you, they're serving you, and they're shepherding you. So the question is, all right, if those are the leaders that we have in mind, then how are we supposed to relate to them? We are family. How do we relate to leaders? And that leads us to the second element we want to look at, and that is the recognition. First, the description of the leaders. Secondly, the recognition of the leaders. And he's basically going to give us two pieces of counsel here. The first one is this. Here's what you do with leaders. You appreciate them. You appreciate them. Verse 12, we request of you, 
brothers and sisters, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Appreciate them. I think the NIV says respect them. And this first guideline is looking at leaders through a perception lens. We're looking at them through a perception lens. Literally, what the original says is know them, be acquainted with them, understand them, recognize the divine role that they play in the family called the church. And the reason why that is so important is because being a leader is difficult. It is demanding. It is exhausting. It's always interesting when we add new elders to our elder team, and and it's fun to talk with them. And a lot of times when you're outside of the leadership flow, it looks like, well, that isn't that hard of a thing to do until you become one of them, and then you realize, wow, this is, this is hard. This takes a lot of work. Turn with me to, to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to notice a, a piece of instruction that the author to the Hebrews gives related to leaders, and I think appreciating them through this perception lens and understanding them and the role that they play. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews 13. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You know, those of us who are leading are going to have to give an account to the chief shepherd for our leading. So he says, Obey them and submit to them. And then notice this. I I love the last part of this verse. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Don't make it hard on them. Don't make it difficult for them. It's hard enough what they have to do without contributing to make it difficult. For this would be unprofitable for you to do. Part of what he's saying is we learn to appreciate them and be acquainted with what their role is, is that we're not bickering with them, we're not resisting them, we're not arguing with them. doesn't mean we don't disagree with them from time to time. But you know what? If you have a family, you'll know that it is inevitable that there will be conflicts in a family. And that same thing is true of a church. It's inevitable that there will be conflicts. But those conflicts, when they come, are also very highly distractive and draining. Sometimes people just don't realize. You know, even as a a church staff, as we have weekly meetings, sometimes we're just talking about how draining some of this is and how distractive it is and how we have our eyes set on some other things we want to accomplish but we sometimes have to come down and deal with some of these other issues he says listen when it comes to relating to leaders we are family you appreciate them appreciate them second piece of advice he has to give is he says regarding leaders you esteem them verse 13 that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work the second piece of counsel looks at leaders through an expression lens the first one is a perception of the role and the responsibility and how hard it is to be a leader this is more through an expression lens we esteem them I think the NIV says hold them in the highest 
regard. Literally, this is what the original says. Regard them very highly in love. Now, I want to remind you that love is not a feeling in the Bible. This is the word agape. Love is action. Love is described with verbs. It's things that we do. And he says, I want you to regard them very highly in love. That is, in an abounding manner. You go overboard a little bit with leaders. You esteem them. You hold them in high regard. Now, I need to pause just for a moment. Let's just sort of freeze frame right there. And I want to I underscore what this is not saying. This is not saying that if you have leaders that fall into flagrant sin, or if you have leaders that are misusing their authority, that you just sort of look the other way. If you have leaders that fall into flagrant sin or misuse their authority, they are leaders who need to be confronted lovingly, potentially leaders who need to be disciplined lovingly, and possibly even leaders who need to be removed from leadership in the local church. Keep your finger here. Go with me to the right a little bit to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want you to notice a couple of verses in 1 Timothy 5. This is talking about what happens when leaders go wild, if you will, when leaders get off the path they ought to be on. And notice chapter 5, verse 19, he says there, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And that's because somebody, one person could make an accusation because they wanted to have a negative impact on that leader. So we need to be careful. We want two or three witnesses but notice it goes on to say, those leaders who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Why is that? Because a leader is a public person. And if they're involved in flagrant sin, they need to be confronted publicly about that issue. And part of the benefit of that is so the rest of the church family will be fearful of sinning. In other words, wow. If that's the way a leader gets confronted in flagrant sin, I want to avoid that myself. So we are to esteem them, to hold them in high regard. Now, I, I want you to know, this means a whole lot more than tossing to a leader uh, some kind of a fancy title. From time to time, uh, people meet me and they like to say to me, Bruce, what would you like to be called? You know, what... what, what how should we address you? And I, and I like to say to them, if you're really going to address me the way that I'd like to be addressed, I'd like you to address me as Most Holy Reverend Father, you know. <laughs> that's what I'd like to hear. And, you know, people laugh, but that's a real title. That is a real title that uh, some people claim for themselves. But it's not about titles. And by the way, speaking of titles, it's kind of interesting. If you go back through the book of Acts, and, you know, it talks about the early church leaders... It's, it's just an interesting observation to see how they are addressed. It's just interesting to see that Paul is called Paul. And, 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 and Peter is called Peter. It's just interesting to me. And somehow I think because of leaders feeling this need to be esteemed, they've come up with these long titles 
But see, that's not what the, where the issue is. It's not a matter of titles at all. He says, here's what you need to do as a church family with your leaders. You need to esteem them. You need to find practical ways to honor them, practical ways to appreciate them, practical ways to value them. And I can think of two arenas in which that can be done. The first one is with words. <laughs> with words. You know, Howard Hendricks talks uh, about a story about a husband and wife that he met the wife, and, and the wife said, you know, my husband never says to me, I love you anymore. And uh, so Howard Hendricks went to the husband and said, why is it you never tell her that you love her anymore? And he said, listen, I told her when we were married, and it's just, it's still there until I revoke it. Well, you know, I think sometimes we think of leaders that way. One time I expressed some appreciation with some words. It's still in, in, in play until I revoke it. But that's not a good way to think of it. Because just like a wife wants her husband to say, I love you, so leaders need to have words of appreciation from people in the church family. So we can use words. We can email notes of encouragement to leaders. It's a great thing to do. I enjoy getting those from time to time. And uh, sometimes I even joke with people. I'll say, you know, I guess I'll keep doing this for one more week now, uh, having received your little word. And, and, but it's really kind of true. I mean, I get energized, and I know other leaders do too. So one thing we can do, practical ways we can honor, appreciate, and value is through our words. Another way that we can do it is through our actions through our actions. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.17, it said, those who work hard at preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. It's talking about practical actions that can happen. And so that's one thing we can do to esteem our leaders. And, and what does that really mean? Well, maybe it means that you come alongside of them and assist them with a project. They're saying, hey, I know you've got to work on that. Let me give you a hand with that. Or maybe it means that you have a particular asset of some sort. Now remember, I'm not talking, this is not just for Bruce here. I'm talking about the whole leadership pool at Wildwood. Maybe you have an asset and you can offer that asset to that person just as a way to esteem them and honor them and to value them. Now, I, I hope you don't mind if I could be extremely candid for just a moment I'll be a little bit transparent with you, but here's what I want you to know from the leadership side of things. We always hear about what's wrong. We always hear about what we could have done better. We always hear that. And that's not all bad. But it's much rarer that we, we get the way to go you did a good job. That's an important ministry that you're doing. Thank you for investing your time in that. So we are to esteem them. So how do we relate to the spiritual leaders since we are family? Well, we've seen the description. We've seen the recognition idea that we appreciate them and esteem them. Then I want us to see the overarching principle over all of this, and that is L-I-P. Notice with me, 
please. The end of verse 13. What does he say there? Live in peace with one another. L-I-P, live in peace. Now, this includes the leaders and the people of God in the church family. What does it mean? It means that we need to extend grace to one another. You know, one of the biggest errors a church can make is they lose sight of the strategy of the enemy. I'm here to tell you now, we've talked about this in Spiritual Counterintelligence, that series that we did. The enemy has a strategy, men and women, with a family that the church is, and that what he is, is he wants to divide and conquer. He wants us to get on opposite ends at loggerheads with one another, and then he simply removes the effectiveness of the church family to get something done. And I could tell you hundreds of stories of that. Do you know that's going on in our town right now, even as I speak? So we need to be aware of the way the enemy works. And he says, what I want you to do is LIP. I want you to live in peace with one another. Let me give you some other verses on this. This is a great theme in the Bible. Psalm 133.1, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Ephesians 4.3, be diligent, work hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because you see, that's what a church family is to do. Romans 12.18, if possible, because it's not always possible, so far as it depends on you, the part I'm bringing to it, be at peace with all men. When we have equipping you and we, we have our little class we call starting point, which is your orientation to Wildwood, and then we, it ends with a membership covenant that we ask people to sign. And part of that membership covenant says that I will seek to protect the unity of my church. Why is that? Because that's a biblical concept. That's a biblical truth. We are to be LIP towards one another, to live in peace with one another. So that's the way you relate to spiritual leaders, all right? Some pretty concrete stuff, pretty practical stuff. Appreciate them, we esteem them, and we LIP. We live in peace. And remember, the leaders are to lead the body. They are to feed the body. They are to protect the body. That's what leaders do. But, this is very important to understand, but... It's not just the leaders in the family of believers who are to care for the body. See, the family of believers, by a broad sense, is not exempt from caring for one another. And that's what he wants to bring out. Notice in verse 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, brothers and sisters, we want you to be properly relating to each other. It's not the sole role of the pastors and the elders and the small group leaders to care for other people. It's a mutual responsibility that the body has. It's where we are family. And that's why there's a whole slew of one another's in the New Testament. This is the way we are to relate to one another, not just the leaders down to the people that they're responsible for, but rather back and forth we are to relate to each other. 
So here's, here's the guidelines he gives us for relating to each other. Number one, he's going to tell us you need to customize your care. Number two, he's going to give us an overarching principle for relating to each other because we are family, and that's PBP. And then finally, he's going to give us a relational bottom line. Now, I'm going to repeat this again. This is very important. What we're going to cover in just the next few moments together may be the most important information that we have shared for months and what we're going to share from these verses, men and women, ought to be in your Bible. What we're going to talk about ought to be something that you have access to. This is very critical since we are family, that we not only know how to properly relate to our leaders, but we know how to properly relate to one another. So let's look at this. The first thing he tells us about relating to one another is that we need to customize our care of one another. And the first thing he tells us is that we are to admonish the unruly. The NIV says we are to warn the idle. The New Living Translation says warn the lazy. What are we talking about here? Well, we need to unpack this just a little bit. When he talks about the unruly in the church family, literally, it's talking about those who are out of rank. Those are out of line. The same word was used outside of the New Testament in the New Testament world of someone who was truant, someone who was irresponsible, the unruly, someone who is out of line with the Word of God, someone who is out of line with God's guidelines on how we are to live our life. And apparently, if you read some of the verses in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, apparently what was happening is there were some believers in the church family who were idle. Everyone else was working. Everyone else was serving. But these people were coasting. They were neglecting their responsibility vocationally and neglecting their responsibility in ministry in the church. They were, I like to call these people, stuck on spiritual cruise. And when you have people in the church family who are stuck on spiritual cruise, they are dead weight to the rest of the family. Dead weight. We have a hint of what these people were like from chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He says there, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Apparently this was a problem in this church family. People were coasting. And then look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As he writes a second letter to the church. And he says in chapter 3, verse 6, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you just keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone's not willing to work, if he's not going to carry his weight, then he is not to eat either. 
For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. The unruly, the ones who are out of rank, they're being irresponsible in the church family. How do we respond to them? Well, he tells us. He tells us very clearly, verse 14, what you need to do is you admonish them. The word admonish means to reprimand. It means to correct. It means to warn you're doing the wrong thing. It means to rebuke them. Now, how that gets done is very important. You can just jot down the reference, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, because Galatians 6, 1 tells you how you are to rebuke, how you are to correct, how you are to admonish and reprimand them, but it is to be done. So how do we relate to one another? Well, we customize our care for one another. The first thing we are told to do is to admonish the unruly. The second thing we are told to do is to encourage the faint-hearted. I think the NIV says the timid. Very interesting term. Literally in the original, it's encourage the small-souled ones in your midst. Someone who is prone to be discouraged, someone who is fragile emotionally, someone who lacks confidence in the church family. Now, can you imagine such a person, and you choose to reprimand them and rebuke them and admonish them? That's not what they need. We're to customize care. What does he say we are to do with those who are faint-hearted? Well, he says you encourage them encourage them in English. You put courage into them. You inspire them with courage. People who are faint-hearted need to be cheered up. They need to be inspired. They need to be affirmed. I believe in you. I believe that God can use you. They need kind words and a smile is what they need. So we're to customize our care as we relate to one another as a church family. The first thing, we admonish the unruly. Secondly, we encourage the faint-hearted. Thirdly, he says, help the weak. Help the weak. What do we mean by the weak? Well, he's not talking about the people in the church family who would fail at bench pressing their weight. He's not talking about that. Or the people who would fail to, they're unable to do 20 push-ups, so they're the weak. And that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who are weak, people who are spiritually weak, people who are needy. People who are needy are the spiritually immature in the body. Maybe the spiritual malnourished ones. Maybe the people who are needy are people who are caught up in a, in a moral struggle in their life. They're just sort of overwhelmed by it. Or maybe someone who is needy is someone who has a habit that's just hamstringing their spiritual life. And he says, what you do is you customize your care for someone like that in the church family. You help them. Help the weak. Interesting pictures being drawn here again. This word help really means to cling to, 
to take hold of someone. We would talk about like wrap your arms around them. Give them practical hands-on assistance. That's what they need. See, that's why someone who is spiritually immature, you know what they really need is they need some people to wrap their arms around them. They need to be involved with a discipleship group of people. And many, many of you can testify, that's what you went through in your spiritual life. You were in this spiritually immature era, and you had some people who put their arms around you and gave you practical hands-on assistance so that you could grow up a little bit. Or maybe if they have a moral issue that they're mired down into, or some habit, they, they need a support group of people. People to, again, wrap their arms around them, give us some practical hands-on assistance to listen to them and to assist them and to, to model victory for them. And there's times when we may need that kind of assistance. In Romans 15.1, it says, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Because, see, what happens is, if we're honest, we're pretty oriented towards the pleasing ourselves thing. And we see someone who is weak, and we're thinking, wow, that's going to make some commitment to help them out. And so we want to dodge it. And he says, no, no, no. Don't dodge that. They need our help. So we are to customize our care for one another. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, he gives us an overarching principle, and that overarching principle is PBP. There, verse 14, please be patient. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Please be patient. P-B-P. If you're an old person, you will remember that years and years and years ago, people used to run around with these buttons, and the buttons had these letters. P-B-P-W-M-G-I-N-T-W-M-Y. And that stood for, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. And it's so true. And he says that's the overarching principle of relating to one another. Be patient. This is the form of patient that means to be long-suffering with people. You know what I've noticed over the years? I've been doing this for a while. I've noticed that people rarely change overnight. They rarely grow overnight. And so when we are ready to pull our hair out, you know, when we're on people overload, when we are battling disappointment with people, we need to be patient. We need to be long-suffering. By the way, if you happen to be here today and you're just kind of ready to give up on people, two suggestions. Number one, you need to remember that this idea of being patient and long-suffering is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. God, if you know Jesus Christ personally, lives inside of you. And you can say, I don't have any more ability to do that. And the Holy Spirit steps up and says, but I do. And so when we're ready to just punt on people, we need to remember that being patient is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And number two, you need to remember God's patience with you. 
God's long-suffering with you. So, if we're going to relate to one another, it means we customize our care. There's an overarching principle that is PBP. But let's look at the relational bottom line. It's in verse 15. This is really the bottom line, men and women. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Let me just give you the bottom line. Refuse to retaliate. That's it. And, and we have a natural tendency to do that. We have a natural tendency to retaliate, to get even. You know, you hurt me, I'm going to wound you back. You shaft me, I'm going to get you back. You mistreat me, I am going to strike you back. I'll give you a taste of your own medicine. We have a natural tendency to do that. It's kind of interesting when you go to the Family Life Marriage Conferences and there's always a a group of couples that are in total crisis, and it's interesting to get involved in a conversation with them, and you'll find out uh, one of them, you know, had an affair. And then it's not unusual to find out the other one decides to have an affair. Why did they do that? You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. You, you. you know, I know how that felt. Now, you just feel the same way. It's kind of interesting, this last week I was driving up I-35 on my way to a doctor appointment in, the, in Oklahoma City, and I'm driving along, and I'm in the left-hand lane, and I've got this adequate space, you know, between me and the car in front of me. And then there's, there's this lady who just speeds up in there and just kind of jams her way right in there. I mean, she just cut right in front of me. And, and you know what I did? I immediately spun to my right because there was room there, and I spit right up, and I was getting ready to cut right back in front of her. You shaft me, I'm going to shaft you. And I'm just getting ready to cut right back in front of her. And I think, what are you doing, Bruce? What comes naturally, God? Refuse to retaliate. Jot down a passage. You can look at it later. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. And basically, I can summarize those verses. It just basically says this. Let God handle it, okay? He's more than capable of dealing with it. Notice in verse 15, he says, See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. In other words, there's no exceptions to this. There's no yes buts with God. Yes, God, but. You just can't believe. No, there's no exceptions. Seek after that which is good. It's a word that means to chase, to run after, to pursue. Here's the aim, and when it comes to relating to one another, the aim is that we need to have an environment where kindness flourishes freely and where grace is dispensed generously. And why is that? Because that's the way God does with us. Have you noticed that? Kindness flourishes freely from Him, and grace is dispensed generously from Him. And by the way, if you struggle... If you struggle with revenge and retaliation, you have lost sight of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So how are we to relate to spiritual leaders? Well, he says we appreciate them, we esteem them. The overarching principle is LIP. When it comes to relating to one another, we customize our care, we admonish the unruly, we encourage the faint-hearted, we help the weak. The overarching principle is please be patient. And then the relational bottom line is refuse to retaliate. 
I'm telling you, men and women, it doesn't get more practical than this. This is as practical as it can be. But what about some life response that we can have before we close? Well, life response, I have, number one, some questions and then some, some action that we can take by way of some life response. Here's the questions. How long has it been since you expressed appreciation to a leader? How long? Second question. How could you esteem a leader? How could God use you? What could you do to esteem a leader? And then, thinking more of relating to one another, do you think and evaluate before you respond to people in the church family? I mean, do you really just go, wait a second here, let's find out what's going on here, and what's, what kind of customized care do I need to give and respond with? And when was the last time you practically cared for someone in the church family? That's a responsibility that you have and I have. We all have. How long has it been? So those are some questions, and then here's the action that we can take. All of us can do this, and all of us should do this. I want you to think about this in the next week before next Sunday. Number one, esteem one leader this week. And number two, minister to one other person. Don't go a week without that. Esteem a leader and minister to one other person. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you that the Bible is like this. It just, I get excited being in it because it is so real and so practical. And Father, we would pray that we would grow into being the kind of family that we are. We are family. And we would pray that we would be effective, that we would flourish in how we, how we relate to our leaders and how we relate to one another. And I know, Father, I believe this with every fiber of my being, that as we do that, as we follow your word, we implement it, you know what's going to happen is that people are going to notice a reality in that church. There's going to be a fragrance that's very sweet that comes from such a, a body. And we know that ultimately we're not trying to impress for ourselves, we're trying to impress for Jesus Christ. Father, make us that kind of a family, we ask, by your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.